So just for the recording, I'll just, uh, so I'm Dr. James Smith, and I'm talking on short-term uh, uh, medical education type trips. So one of the things that we, I was just, I'm sorry, I was in the middle of saying, one of the reasons is economical air travel. First time I went to Kenya in the 60s cost about half again as much as what it cost me to go now. So that's been a big change. The other thing is an increased awareness of the needs uh, in these countries. But in the past, a lot of the emphasis has been on clinical work and helping the individual patient. And that's good. I have nothing wrong with that. If you are in a surgical field like myself, I'm an otolaryngologist, but I do do cleft lips and cleft palates. You came back and you, how many operations did you do? And that was what you told. Uh, there are a lot of large organizations involved. There are a lot of one or two man NGOs in this country that are involved. Most of those are because the person who started it couldn't get along with somebody else and wanted to have their own thing. Uh, some of them are poorly organized uh, or they're not coordinated well. We have problems in MEI and PACS with just coordinating. Sometimes we end up with three surgeons in one hospital all wanting to take over the one operating room and operate every day, and there just isn't enough capacity. So coordination is a big problem. The other problem is a lot of times I don't think people have asked the nationals, what do they see as their needs or what do they want? We don't talk to them. We've got an idea of what they need, and we go to tell them that. Uh, sometimes there are eagles involved. Uh, sometimes people go for uh, the emphasis is, is guilt money. When I was in Rwanda a few years ago, they told me there were, this was like 15 years after the problems they had in the early 90s. There were over 150 NGOs working in that country, and there were another hundred that wanted to come in, but the government wouldn't let them in because they had too many. So and they felt that that was because we all felt guilty that we hadn't done anything when they were having their problems. But I think there's a new paradigm that is taking place. People are asking for sustainable projects. And I'll use two examples, again, from the cleft lip, cleft palate world because that's one of the areas that I'm aware of. Operation Smile is a large organization. It's been going for probably almost 40 years. Uh, they're, they're, uh, the way they operate is they come into a country, they bring their own surgeons, their own anesthesiologists, their own uh, uh, scrub nurses, their own PAR uh, 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 post-recovery nurses, their floor nurses. They bring in all their equipment, their anesthesia. They descend on a hospital. They take over the hospital for a week or 10 days do as many cases as they can do, and then leave. I'm not sure why that's happening. Uh, and what do they leave behind? Well, there were some people that were involved with that organization said, you know what, there has to be a better way. And they started Smile Train. And their model is a little different, and I had some experience with them in China. They would come in and they would say to a hospital, if you identify a surgeon who can do these cases, we will bring somebody who will train them to do cleft lips and cleft palates, and we will subsidize the care. And so I went to, to this particular hospital. I'd been going for a year or two, and that particular year, uh, they, I was there for two weeks. They assigned a doctor to me, and the first two days, he helped me do cases. The next three days, I helped him do cases. 
The next week, uh, we had two tables in the same operating room so that I could supervise him and help him if he had a problem. And after I left, he continued to do them. When I came back a year later, he was doing cleft lips and cleft palates and doing a reasonably good job. Now, a lot of people would be critical of that, that he didn't have a full plastic surgery residency. But in that situation, I thought he was doing a good job. Another one is Mercy Ship. And some of you may recognize that name. They have large ships. They go to West Africa. They anchor off of a, off of a country. And they bring in volunteer physicians and surgeons from the U.S. They bring people from the country. They do surgery. Uh, and, and then they leave after a year. But uh, we were trying to do a project with them a couple of years ago, and I was talking to them, and they said, our donors are starting to ask us, what are you doing that is sustainable? And we want to get into training. And so they were seeing that shift. So there is much more of an emphasis on training, not just on doing. Uh, we had one, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but one of our hosts in Kenya when asked what he thought about short-term medical teams, he said they really, to be successful, have to do three things. Training, transfer of skills, and repeat trips. And I think in MEI, that's what we have found to be the most uh, valuable. So why do you want to go? And I think we need to all ask ourselves that. Is it just purely for evangelism? Uh, is a desire to help those that are less fortunate than ourselves? That's a major tenet of most major religions. Unfortunately, in the surgical field, sometimes it's to get surgical experience. That came to bite us uh, here in the U.S. several years ago when a lot of plastic surgery programs, residents were not getting enough cleft lips and cleft palates for experience, so they were taking them to Mexico and doing them on short-term trips. Well, we look at it, you know, you have this poor child from the village who doesn't have a repaired cleft lip and he's five years old and we go in and we do that, we've helped them, right? The problem is they looked at it as you're bringing your people down to experiment on us and they shut it all down. Uh, and so we have to be careful about that. Sometimes you just like to travel and adventure. Uh, sometimes it's economics. I can't tell you how many countries... Even poor countries where people see a dollar to be made by building a hospital and trying to garner all the, the care that is going overseas from these countries, thinking that the private hospital uh, will be able to make money. So you might ask me, why do teaching rather than just do direct care? The rewards are more tangible. You have immediate feedback. You have more of a chance to do a one-on-one witness, one -on -one witness if you have a patient directly. Uh, but the big question is, what happens when you leave? You've helped that person, that's good. But is there something that you can do that will be sustainable? And the thing I like about teaching is you can do both the clinical care and the teaching. So why medical education? Well, I think we have opportunities to show the love of Christ. I think when you work, and I have students and residents here, but it's true also of faculty you might work with, they're going to ask you why you come. They're going to ask you about your beliefs. And I think the big thing is in education, particularly if you do have students and residents, we have an opportunity to influence them for good for the next generation. And to me, that is a real plus, both in medical knowledge and in many places, just how you care for patients. The other thing... Uh, 
as I said, I taught in Singapore. And one of the things that I realized when I first went to Singapore was that my residents really did not have a model of teaching as a career. All they thought about was learning how to operate, stay in the university for a couple of years to practice their skills and go into private practice and make money. One of my residents said to me one day, he said, Prof, why do you do this? And I said, well, you know, I said, I enjoy teaching uh, and so on. And I said, you know, the Chinese, I said, they revere teachers. And he said, well, yes, he says we revere teachers, but if you have to make a choice between being revered and making money, you choose money every time. And so that was his, uh, his take on it. So who was the ultimate teacher? Well, I think our example should be Jesus. He had a servant attitude. Uh, and I like to use an example. Who did he teach? Well, Pharisees and lawyers. And I liken those to the faculty. You know, they, they don't think they need to learn anything. They already know it. They don't want to change and so on. And then you have the disciples, and I liken those as to the residents. You know, they were very close to him. They followed him around. They, uh, they listened. They learned from him. And then you have the crowds, and I think of those as the medical students that you lecture to in large rooms. And then, of course, there are one-on-one -on -one opportunities as well. And what did Jesus do other than what were his frequent activities? Church planning? Uh, well, maybe some. Feeding the hungry, he did that. Healing was one of the miracles that we hear about. Probably healing was one of the top ones. And then other miracles, and maybe he even went fishing with uh, some of them. Uh, so what makes a good teacher? I like what John Patrick said a few years ago. It takes someone who loves their subject and needs to know their subject, so they need to be excellent in their subject, uh, but also loves their students. And students can tell whether you care for them or not. We have the opportunity to building into their lives, sharing our experiences, and as we've already said, leaving something behind. Now, a lot of times what I get from people when I talk about MEI teaching teams, uh, I get this glazed over look and I'm not a teacher, I don't know how to teach. We're all teachers. Any of you who have families, you know that you're teaching your kids without saying anything. Sometimes when you say something, but some t a lot of it is just uh, things that they observe. Same thing is true when you go overseas. So that teaching is not just giving lectures, but it can also be making rounds with students uh, or with faculty. So there are a lot of opportunities to teach. You can teach with the attitude you use. Uh, you can be influenced. You can demonstrate. Uh, and I like to use this. How many of you can think of teachers who were a positive influence for you? And how many of you can think of teachers that were a negative influence? And so we have to be careful that we're a positive influence because we're going to be influencing a generation of young people. Oops, sorry. So we can do this with our attitude as Jesus, a servant model, approachable. I can tell you in most countries that I go to, uh, the professors are unapproachable. Uh, and if you spend time with a student uh, and you let them talk to you and ask questions, they're not used to doing that, and many times they're afraid to do that. Uh, interacting with students in the classroom, patient care, they're not used to being asked questions, uh, they, and they won't ask you questions. So that interaction is something that I think we can model because we're used to it. Encourage questions. Allow hands-on, not just observation. 
most students in many countries learn by observation only. I was just reading an article on the way here yesterday uh, from Kenya. Uh, and this, they had taken a small group of students and put them in smaller hospitals out from the city. And the comment was that they were actually allowed to scrub in the operating room. They were allowed to put in some stitches. In the main teaching hospital, they said, when you make rounds, there are 40 of us. And, you know, unless you're actively elbow your way to the front, what are you going to learn if you're back about six, seven, eight rows? That's true in many countries. Some of these countries that I go to will have five, 600 students in a class and have less faculty than we have here for 100 or 150. The other thing I think is important is demonstrating a methodical and evidence-based approach. Again, something that's foreign in many of these countries. I know in MEI we've done some ATLS training and we've been criticized for doing that because they're not ready for that. But just the idea, there are a lot of things they can't use that we can do in ATLS. Their emergency rooms aren't going to look anything like ours. But just teaching them a methodical method makes a huge change in the care that they give. Uh, we can model patient care for residents. We can demonstrate to residents how we take care of patients. Uh, we can encourage them to ask for help. Again, my residents in Singapore would never ask for help in the operating room, whether they knew what they were doing or not. Because they said, if I say, if I ask for help, it means I don't know how to do the case and they lose face. But more importantly, the faculty then says, well, you don't know how to do it. I'll do it. And they don't get to do it. It isn't uh, uh, helping them do it. And then we also we can make friends with the students, faculty, residents on outside. So let's talk a little bit about some opportunities. Now, when my wife looked at this uh, presentation with me the other night, she says, why do you have that picture of a gas station in there? Uh, <laughs> this is not a gas station. This is a new medical school in Addis Ababa that's associated with the Korean hospital there. They're starting a new medical school. They, they're now into their third year, so their third-year students are just starting in the clinical areas. They're desperately looking for people who are willing to come for two weeks or more to teach and work in the clinical rotations. They also are looking for people to teach in basic science. At the present time, they actually have a retired physician in physiology coming from Korea who spends like three months there teaching physiology to the students. But they're looking for people in any area of basic science. So if any of you are in basic science or know people in basic science, there are opportunities for you to serve as well. Uh, also established medical schools. Most of the medical schools, particularly in developing countries, still use the old traditional method that those of us who are older here were trained with, rote memory. Uh, you know, you memorize everything, very little hands-on. The, but there is an increasing interest to learn about new curriculum changes. And so what I've really gotten into is doing a lot of uh, uh, courses on faculty development, curriculum development, uh, and residency training, medical student education training, and things like that. Residency training, again, residency training in many countries uh, really needs some help. Uh, I was in Egypt last year, and I talked to an otolaryngologist who had finished his ENT training, had taken the equivalent of what we would call our boards. It's called a Master's of Medicine there. And he had not gotten to do any surgery. He had to pay a private practitioner to teach him how to do a tonsillectomy 
adenoidectomy, myringotomy, and tubes. And that was all he knew about the whole field as far as surgery is concerned. That is not untypical in many countries. Many countries, they may get to scrub and watch and watch, but they're never allowed to do something with somebody helping them. So those are things that we can model and that we can change. There are a lot of family medicine programs, and I suspect there are some family medicine people in the audience this morning. Uh, in his image, has done a lot of this. They have programs in China, Afghanistan. Uh, anybody wants to go there? Uh, Macau, Iraq. Uh, there are other programs in Kenya and Egypt. So there are a lot of opportunities, a lot of places that are looking to start new programs. Internal medicine, there is a program in uh, Mbingo, Cameroon, where they started an internal medicine program. They're looking for people, particularly in the medical specialties, neurology, uh, gastroenterology, anything like that, to come for two weeks and to help teach their residents. And then, as I said earlier, I'm involved with PACS. As we, what we do is we train residents in mission hospitals. And this was actually the vision of Dr. David Thompson, who's going to be the main speaker on Saturday morning. I encourage you to come and listen to him. He was working in a small mission hospital in southern Gabon. He'd been there about 15 years, and he said he woke up one morning and looked at himself in the mirror, and he said, you know, who's going to do this when I leave? And he recognized that if he identified a Gabonese doctor to go to the U.S. to be trained in the surgery, chances were very high he would never come back. And if he did come back, he would probably go to the city and not want to come to a small mission hospital. So that's our goal. And we have, uh, we have graduated now. The first resident that Dr. Thompson took, I think, was 1997 or 96. And we now have graduated 35 uh, surgeons. I think all of them have stayed in Africa, as far as I know. And we have 50 in training right now. Our goal was to have 100 by 2020. And we're on, in line to do that if everything continues the way it is. So, again, it's a great opportunity for any of you who are in the surgical field. We take all kinds of subspecialties because these residents are being, they're going to have to go out and do everything. They're not going to have any subspecialists in the small hospitals that they're going to. And as I said, I've really gotten interested in faculty development, uh, medical student teaching, graduate uh, or residency training. Uh, this is, we were just in Egypt last month, and we were, it was a small group, but they were interested in knowing more about residency training, graduate medical education, uh, and we were able to do this. The doctor on the left uh, in that small group is from here in the U.S. He has a master's, in, uh, a, a master's degree in medical education. So if any of you are looking for careers in the future, I'd encourage you to think about doing something like that. Uh, now, I don't know if there are any of you here who are in the paramedical fields. There's a huge need for you as well. Uh, nursing education. We frequently get invitations where people want us to bring nurses to teach in, in nursing schools. Uh, village health workers, and that's more of a practical type of thing that can be done. Uh, there's a large uh, uh, group in Portland that does teaching uh, emergency medical technicians first responders and things like that. And then other paramedical fields, audiology, speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, special education teachers. What do they have to do with medicine? Well, about four years ago, I was asked if we could bring a team to Kenya to do work in pediatric neurodisability uh, disabilities, particularly autism, but also cerebral pulse and developmental delay. 
most physicians, few pediatricians, but most physicians aren't interested in that. So the team really was, we had a developmental pediatrician. Uh, I went along as team leader, but they said, no, no, it's, uh, hearing's important in kids, so I gave a lecture on hearing. But the main people on it were the speech therapists, the occupational therapists, physical therapists. My daughter, who was a social worker, went one year. But then we found in autism, one of the real needs was for teachers because there's a huge need of that. And we have had a lot of requests, particularly from Central Asia, uh, where there's a lot of autism. And what we finally figured out was there was a delayed diagnosis. But the reason is some of these countries, by law, only psychiatrists can make the diagnosis of autism. And they will not see patients until they're at least four years of age. So you lose that critical training period for autistic children. And so there's a real interest uh, in this area as well. So, cultural things. What can you do? Well, I th one of the things, if you've never done this, I'd encourage you to go with somebody who has done it or go with a group, but start small. And I think the first thing is ask a lot of questions. As Americans, that's hard for us to do. We want to do the talking. Uh, but be willing to ask the questions. Uh, learn, observe. I had to observe, first time I went to China, what I'm doing here is we were getting ready for surgery. You scrubbed, and then you had to put your arms up to the elbow in this alcohol bath for five minutes. Uh, and the reason was because the water was so contaminated, you had to kill the germs by putting your hands in the alcohol. Uh, don't be critical of their techniques. I don't know if there are any ENT people in the crowd, but this, this young man at the top was being treated for acute sinusitis, I've never seen a drill hole like that in the middle of the forehead. We cover it up. We put the holes down here under the eyebrow. Uh, the one down below had a fractured nose, and that's the way they held the fracture in place. Uh, I mean, that looks like medieval. medieval. Uh, but you have, to, you have to respect them for what they do. It's working for them. Uh, you may be able to make some suggestions, but what you really want to do is you want to uh, develop a trust with them. The hardest thing is, whoa, what happened here? There we go. Uh, the hardest thing to do is when, and usually it's not a physician, but other people will ask you, what do you think of the medical care in our country? And sometimes, you know, it's, you know, it's not very good. So how do you answer that and still be truthful? I usually try to pick out things that I think are good, and I can tell you, I don't care where I've gone, I've always learned something. And so I learn from them, and I, and I try to say, well, you know, and there's some things that they're really working on and want to improve. So you can do that. Uh, but with that trust and being truthful, you will find acceptance and respect will come. I said when I went to Singapore, it took me a year of being there full time before I was trusted. And so that's going to be, I think, the experience. And that's one of the problems in a short-term trip. It's hard to develop that. But if you go back, repeated trips, you will develop that trust. Uh, we, we may think that their medical knowledge is inferior to ours. Again, I think we have that problem as Americans. We have very good medical care. We think we have the best medical training in the world. Uh, and I constantly have to check myself to be careful and not make that assumption. Uh, when I first went to Mongolia in 2002, 12, 10, year, 10 or 12 years after they got their independence, 
they still were using outdated Russian texts, but that's all they had. And so you had to take that into account. Their teaching techniques are not good, and that's one of the things that we can teach them, is how can you teach better? Uh, sometimes it's lack of experience. Sometimes it's just outdated equipment that they have to use. Another thing is you need to be culturally sensitive to their taboos. In the upper uh, picture, we're doing a suture course using pig's feet for the residents to practice on. When I first went to Singapore, and we do that in the U.S. all the time, when I first went to Singapore, we put on a course on facial plastic surgery, and half a day was on suturing. So we got pig trotters, that's what they call them in Singapore, and uh, the, uh, what we had forgotten was we had a lot of people attending the course from Indonesia, Muslim, Malaysia, Muslim. Muslims don't have anything to do with pork. And I was told later, I didn't know this at the time, but the residents told me that some of the Indonesians, when they walked in the room, and the smell and seeing the pig's feet was so overpowering, they actually were nauseated, and some of them went out and vomited. And so we hadn't even thought about that. And, I mean, the Singaporeans hadn't thought about it. In the lower one, we were in Kazakhstan, again, a Muslim, basically a Muslim country, but much more secular. But what uh, I was within his image at this particular one, and what they found worked was cow's tongues. And it actually worked pretty good for suturing. So cow's tongues are acceptable because they're a clean animal. The other thing is government prohibitions. Now, if you really, if evangelism is your main focus and purpose for going, there are going to be countries where you're not going to be able to do that openly. China is one example. A lot of Muslim countries, you have to be very careful what you say. And if, if you feel very strongly about this, you probably ought not to go to these countries. You're not going to be able to go out on the street corner and preach the gospel or even hand out the four spiritual laws. That's just not allowed. And I, know, I don't know if any of you went last night. There was a talk by a doctor who's worked in China for over 20 years that I know. And his particular group has made a conscious decision that they will only be involved with the uh, self or the, the three self-help churches. Somebody help me out here. Anyway, it's the government-sponsored uh, church. I've gone to several of them. And some of them are very, I mean, I'm sure some are not good, just like here in the States. Some of them are very good. The ones I've gone to had very good messages, and I have no problem with being at those, rather than to go to the house churches, which are not accepted in China. And you know why? The Chinese are always suspicious, and as long as they know what's going on, it's out in the open and they can see it, they're okay with it. They'll tell you they've got freedom of religion. As long as they know what's going on. And they actually will send people to the church to listen, to make sure that it's all on the up and up. It's the house churches that they're worried about because they don't know what's going on underneath the ground. And so that's the reason there's that prohibition. But I think particularly if you're going on a short term, you've got to be very careful about that. Because unless you know what's going on or you're going with somebody who knows that culture, you do need to be sensitive to those governmental prohibitions. Now, last of all in culture, sometimes we're disappointed. We're a little bit like uh, the Americans when we first went into Iraq. You remember, what was that, 2002, 2003, something like that? Ah, you know, they're gonna, we're, gonna, we're just going to save them. Uh, we're going to relieve them from uh, all of their problems, and they're going to welcome us with open arms. And 
maybe that happened for the first two weeks, but then it went downhill from there. Uh, so sometimes you're going to be a little bit disappointed. You may be seen as a threat, particularly if you go to older established medical schools in very traditional schools. And my experience has been mainly uh, in Central Asia, Eastern Europe, and so on. The professors, they've been doing this for years. They do not want to change, and they're going to let anybody underneath them change. And so you may be seen as a threat, and you need to understand that, and you have to be careful uh, what you do and what you say. The other thing is, maybe you're going to be taking something economically away from them. I love this saying from Singapore, you're eating out of my rice bowl. And I don't, have any of you ever read the book, When Helping Hurts? If you haven't, I'd really recommend that you read it. And there was one story, I'm pretty sure it was from that book, about Central, uh, Central America, where a pastor in a church here had a relationship with a pastor down there, and he wanted help for his parishioners' medical care. So the church here said, okay, we'll start a health clinic in your church. They went down for a week, and they were going to have a team come every week uh, for a week every two months, which was good. So the week that they're there, medical care is free. Okay? What happens to the doctor sitting over here in the corner? He has nobody. And after a year, every two months, he loses his income for a week. He gives up and leaves the village. Uh, So the village really, in the long run, is worse off. Now, how could they have changed that? My recommendation has been to friends of mine who have gone with church teams is, get involved with the local doctors. Go out and talk to them. Work with them. Do it in their clinic. Don't do it in the church. Do it, you know, uh, in the community so that you get them involved. That's just my prejudice. Then there's the cachet of being a foreigner. Uh, people, oh, you know, if you're from America, you're a really good doctor, and I want to see you. I don't want to see the local doctor. You've got to be very careful about that. You don't want the doctors you're with losing face, particularly in Asia. You don't want to criticize them in front of their peers, or their residents, or uh, patients. There may be restrictions on visas or medical licenses. You have to be aware of that. Don't try to go around that. You have to live within the laws. But in many of these situations, even if you can't get a license to practice, you can teach, and that will be acceptable. Here's a big one. I think we need to ask the nationals what they see as their needs and what they would like help with rather than for us to go in and tell them what we think they need. I think we can go in and say, you know, here are some things that we've done in the past. This has worked. Would you be interested? But we can't go in and tell them what they need. Uh, If you're preparing, for those of you who are younger, uh, I think specialty training helps. But here in the U.S., everybody gets specialty training, family medicine, uh, and everybody has a specialist degree. I think if you enjoy teaching, I would encourage you to do that proactively. Look for courses on teaching, and there are those types of things around. Uh, look possibly for an academic position. Prepare your career for being a teacher. You will really be needed. Take it, as I said, take education courses, uh, and plan to take a faculty position if you can get one, if you like that type of thing. I know I was on a faculty, and I enjoyed it. There are a lot of people who are very frustrated with it. But, you know, there are a lot of, uh, like, family medicine training programs that aren't associated with the university that have a lot of less of the pressures that you do at a university. And so think about those possibilities as well. So now I'm just going to end up here with talking about 
a little bit about MEI and some of the things that we've done. Our motto is teaching to transform. Uh, basically, we do short-term teaching teams, usually at the request of either a national that we've had some contact with, or many times it's with a full-time missionary who's working in a country. They may have some contacts in the medical community, or they may actually be physicians, and they will ask you to come and to do teaching-type teams. Uh, we use those relationships to develop, uh, I'm sorry, those, uh, uh, that expertise and contacts, develop relationships, encourage our colleagues. One of the things that I really enjoy is that a lot of times missionaries who, some of these countries are all alone, uh, and they really are encouraged by having a team for a week. It's a lot of work for them, and we need to be conscious of that. It is a lot of work to entertain a group for a week, I can tell you. Uh, but they do appreciate us coming. Uh, uh, and then sharing our professional knowledge and faith with our colleagues. Now, Kenya was one of the places that I've been involved with. As you know, I spent time there back in the 60s, and so still my favorite place in the world. Uh, but with MEI, we first in 2004 started doing ACLS and ATLS training. We did it for five years. We did drop out 2008 because of some problems, but otherwise we did it for five years. Uh, and we turned that over to the Kenyans to run. We started having them involved with giving the lectures after two years. And by the time we finished, they were giving all the lectures. And now they do all of their own training. In Nairobi, you cannot get a job in an emergency room unless you've had ATLS training, uh, which, which they're doing on their own. Uh, I mentioned the pediatric neurodevelopment uh, team that we've done. We've been there three times with that. And again, we were training more people uh, in paramedical areas we were than, more than in medicine. And then we put on an international oncology conference, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So Dr. Mahudia, who many times is at this conference, I haven't seen him here yet. He may be here. I'm not sure. He was our host. He's seen a lot of short-term teams come. And one of my uh, participants asked him when we were there, you know, Stephen, what, what do you think is useful of a short-term team? Are we doing any good? And this is what he said. I already said this earlier. But it, to be successful, he felt you needed to do training and education, a transfer of skills, whether it's operating room or I don't know whether there are any speech therapists here, but our pediatric team, we had a speech therapist who taught how to do the early Denver model of uh, teaching autistic children. But it gave them a skill to use. That was important. And the other thing is repeat trips. And I can tell you that really is important. One-off things don't work very well. But if you go back and back, that's where you're going to be a success. The other thing that I think makes these trips successful is if you can tie up with a local missionary who is there full-time. That also will make your short-term trip much more successful. Uh, and then he, he said, use, uh, come at least three times and, and kind of narrow in on a specific area. So what have I learned? Well, one of the things I learned, it's not all about us. And I learned some of this from the oncology conference. Uh, you need to ask, and I keep harping on this, ask your host what they need. So when we were planning this oncology conference, I was doing it with Dr. Mahudia. We'd been planning it for about three years. And about a year before we actually had it scheduled, 
he and I sat down and we had this great program, three-day program. We were going to do it in a hotel. We were going to have a plenary sessions and then we were going to have breakout, two parallel breakout sessions. We picked the topics we thought would be good for them. And I did it with him. It wasn't just me. Well, he said, he's a pediatrician. He said, you know, I'm not an oncologist. I really need to get the local oncologist society involved, which he did. Well, that worked okay, but the first cut on the program, I had, I had somewhere around eight to ten people, about half of them from major universities in the U.S. that were coming to lecture. And the first cut on the program, out of the people that I was bringing, most of them were getting either one or two 15-minute talks in this three-day conference. And I was a little, and, and they cut out all of the parallel sessions. They, did, they do not like to have to make a choice between two topics. They wanted just one track. And so that cut out half the lectures right there. So I was really kind of disappointed. Stephen wrote to me, he says, oh, he says, I'm sorry, you weren't supposed to see that. Well, I did. So I wrote to all the people coming, and I said, look, this is the situation. If you want to back out, I understand, and it's no problem. Well, the first email I got back was from a gynecological oncologist from Canada, and she said, I've been planning this for two years. She said, I don't care whether I even give a talk, if I'm just on a panel or whatever. She said, I think this is what the Lord wants me to do. And that was what most of the people in the group did. So what was really interesting was that um, we all, so 60% of the lectures were given by either Kenyans or people from the region. We found, that all of us as Americans, we found it fascinating to hear what their experience was. It was great. And when I sat down to write my report to MEI, it suddenly dawned on me. This was an African conference with some U.S. input. It was not the Americans coming to give you a conference that you need to learn at. And I think it made a huge difference. And that, I think that's one thing that I learned. Uh, so, there's going to be disappointments. Uh, we want change right away. Uh, we want instant gratification. But changes are going to be slow. Uh, sometimes they may be almost imperceptible. Uh, I can give you an example from the pediatric team. We did see some change, actually, and it was very interesting. The, we were at a children's hospital. The first year we went, the average age of a child that was uh, referred to their developmental clinic was eight years of age. When we went back a year later, it had dropped to three years. And so I think the conference had made a huge change in that, just that early diagnosis and early treatment. So there are changes that will happen. Uh, it may be frustrating not being able to see tangible results like you can with doing surgery. You know, surgeons, we like to cut, cure, gone. Uh, and so uh, that may, you may find that frustrating. You know, a lot of the teams that we go on, uh, we may not be able to develop as close as relationships as we would like. Uh, you're not going to be able to come home and say, you know, we had X number of decisions for Christ. Uh, and so you may be disappointed with that. But I feel that we need to leave those results with the Lord. Uh, and someone else may be the one that's going to reap the fruits. I say a lot of times with our MEI teams, we're just picking up the stones and throwing them off the ground. So, why would we want to do it? Well, as I've said earlier, we have the possibility of influencing a whole generation of doctors, medically and spiritually. And the other thing I think we need to keep in mind is that National physicians are probably going to do a better job of reaching their 
people for Christ than we are. They know the culture. They know the language. And so I think they're going to do a better job. I can tell you, when I go to China uh, with my friends from Singapore or from home who speak Mandarin, you know, I just will be deaf and dumb. I mean, I can't communicate with... I mean, it's getting better. There are a lot of them speak English now. But, you know, you go to a foreign language and you really do have to depend on the other people. I, as an example, we took a young uh, doctor. She was Chinese, but has been in the States, works in the States. And she went with us and did mainly translation, although did one talk. And she was able to communicate with the young doctors uh, and she was really able to witness to them things that were acceptable. I couldn't do that. And so I think we need to keep that in mind. So last-minute tips. Keep a sense of humor. Be flexible. Uh, adapt to the unexpected. You never know who you might have to treat. And this actually is a picture of, it's from Singapore. Uh, the, uh, one of my colleagues and I were asked to go to the zoo and treat this chimpanzee for a draining ear. Uh, so, so the other thing is, I actually have a degree in veterinary medicine before I went to medical school, so that was the reason they asked me to do that. <laughs> and then last of all, pray a lot. So what are the rewards? I think opportunities to show grace, show the love of Christ. Students and residents, I can tell you, and faculty members are going to ask you about your belief system. Again, over and over, you were going to influence that next generation. And I hope that we can model teaching as a worthwhile career for these people. So what should be our motive? I think to show the love of Christ, and I do like this verse from 1 Peter. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And I think those last two words are the most important. We need to do it with respect. Uh, and sometimes I don't think we do that really very well. Uh, and then last of all, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. So I hope there are some of you today that have been here that have found this interesting and that you will think of education as a possible uh, missionary career position. So I, I learned something new about preparing lectures just recently. So what you do is you ask for questions before you give your summary. So here's your opportunity. Uh, if you give the summary, everybody thinks it's over and they leave. So we'll take the questions and then I'll do my summary. Any questions? Yes. If anybody wants to participate in uh, teaching uh, on trips, did they call MBA, MEI? Yeah, uh, MEI, and, and we have a website. You can come past our booth and sign up and you'll get our mailing list. Uh, yes, and that's one good way of doing it. Uh, and we'd be certainly happy to try to find places for you to go. Are yes, ma'am. opportunities for laboratory medicine teaching? Oh, absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, so the question is, are there opportunities for laboratory medicine? Uh, I had a young man from uh, Portland, I'm from Portland, Oregon, uh, a couple years ago who asked me that question. Unfortunately, he was never able to go, but when I mentioned this to actually Dr. Thompson, who's speaking tomorrow morning, he said, oh, send him, because they were setting up a lab for uh, doing, they were, they'd just gotten a project in HIV, and they needed help getting their lab set up. Uh, I don't think Dennis Palmer's here. But at Mbingo, I'm pr they have a lab, too, and I'm sure that, yes, don't worry about it. There's a place for you to go. I'll have to add that. Sorry about that. But absolutely. 
in almost any area like that, uh, you can be used. And, you know, and, you know, just uh, helping them with new equipment. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to some of these particularly developing countries uh, or even in China where they have, you know, some of the latest equipment, some equipment that we don't even have, but they don't know how to use it. Nobody has taught them how, or maybe more important is when to use it. And so they use it for everything. Uh, and so that type of teaching training is obviously very important. Yeah, yeah. So the question is, on a typical t uh, trip, how much time is spent clinically versus doing actual teaching? Totally depends on the project. Uh, like Mongolia, we've had teams twice a year now for 17 years, I think, going there. And it's changing. When I first went back in 2002, 2004, we were doing uh, kind of half and half. Uh, now, they really want more teaching, and so we're having to change our paradigm there, and we've, we're, we just, we've just realized in the last couple of years we really need to look at that hard and ask about that. So it depends. Now, the other thing is sometimes you'll have conferences where you'll do mostly teaching, uh, and uh, so uh, that's, a little bit, that's a little bit different. So it really depends, and it depends on a person's interest. You know, you look young. You look like you must be a surgeon. Uh, and <laughs> so, you know, uh, like in Macedonia, uh, people would go to the OR and they'd scrub in on surgery and they'd probably do more of that than actual teaching. The other big problem is, you know, you have to keep in mind these people are in their working mode. I mean, they still have to see patients. You know, we'd like to walk in there and say, okay, we want to give uh, four hours of lectures a day and four hours of lecture on on Friday, yeah, they can't take off. Some countries, when we were in Indonesia, it wasn't a problem doing it in the morning, but everybody left at 2. Why do you think they left at 2? They, they, had, they had to go home and have lunch, have a nap, and at 4 o'clock, private office opened, and they worked from 4 till 10 in their private office, seeing private patients. Many countries, the pay for doctors and the government service is minuscule, and the only way they can make a living is to have a private practice on the side. And they're not going to come to something, uh, you know, that you're going to do. We had this experience in Singapore. Uh, so any of you are family medicine, this has to be the worst job in the world. A, a GP in Singapore starts at 9 o'clock in the morning, goes to 12 or 12.30, goes home for lunch, starts again at 2, goes till 5.30, goes home for dinner, starts again at 7 and goes till 9. Six days a week. And and then Sunday morning. Uh, and so the only time you can have a CME conference that GPs will come to in Singapore is on Sunday afternoon because that's the only free time they have. So you have to think about those types of things. Yes, ma'am. I just wanted to make a comment that one, seeing an older seasoned man that's willing to change and be taught and learn and grow is a great role model and example to, you know, all the others, you know, generations. Well, thank you. Education and medicine, and I think again, that's that's really taken it to 
if you can't go or someone else can't go, they can continue right. what you have imparted. So I think yeah. it's a beautiful, godly vision and really wise. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes, sir. So how do you manage the values uh, of patient care uh, on a short-term trip? And I'm not exactly sure what you're referring to, uh, uh, whether it's the, the type of care or if you disagree with the care. Is that what you're thinking? Oh, that the patient the patient is first. Well, so you know, sometimes you have to know the culture because uh, sometimes it isn't the patient first. Like for instance, in making decisions, I can remember one time in Singapore having a young man who was like 26 with a bad glomus jugulari tumor that needed to be operated on, and so they came in and he brought his father with him uh, to discuss surgery, and. You know, it's a fairly high-risk surgery from the standpoint of, of things that can go wrong, plus, you know, the deficits that may be left over. I'm talking to the patient. The father's talking to me. So it was like this. What I didn't realize and wasn't aware of, and I made a, a bad faux pas, was the father was going to make the decision whether he'd be operated. He's 26. I turned to him and I said, look, you're 26 years old. You make the decisions. It's your decision, not your father. Bad move. Uh, it was not his decision. It was his so a lot of countries are that way. So the real problem, I think, is if you, like for instance, some countries, particularly Muslim countries, I don't have a lot of experience in this particularly, but in Muslim countries, the husband may make the decision. Now, what if the husband makes a decision that you think is wrong or not the best medically? How do you handle that? For us as Americans, that is usually hard to handle. Uh, but those are things you need to think about. I actually, uh, uh, again, I read another book on, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but it's, it was about medical th- ethics in international medicine. It was actually a sector book. And uh, I actually proposed doing a session here on, on that, uh, based on that book. And I think it's something that a lot of times we don't think about. I mean, it raised some real cultural things like, you know, female circumcision, uh, you know, Muslim countries cutting off the arm, uh, and they asked the surgeon to cut off the arm so they didn't just chop it off. Well, what do you do? Do you cut off the arm so that it's done, uh, you know, surgically, with, or do you refuse to do it? I mean, th- these are the, some of the ethical issues you have to, to come up with. Anything other specific that you... We could use that one in the U.S. One is I will care for the equipment and so Yeah. Well, those sound like you know good ones, and those are things that you know in the individual situation. I'd be interested to know what the rest of them are because I'm sure they were very good. Yes. So that's another big one. This uh, you'll run into a lot of times in foreign countries. Patient with cancer, family will tell you, don't tell the patient they have cancer. I even had that in Singapore. And I, the, the way I handled that was I always told uh, a family, I will not lie to the patient. 
Uh, I mean, if they directly asked me if they had cancer, I would tell them that they did. Uh, and but so yeah, so those are being truthful is is so. Uh, John Patrick, several years ago, asked the question in a talk that I heard him give. What do you think is the most important, truth or loyalty? Can I think about that for a minute while I answer this lady's question? Well, I have an observation. Yeah. I heard some deliveries in Mauritania some years back, and a twin delivery happened, and the, the male, there was male-female discrimination. We were instructed not to, resusc- to resuscitate the male infant and to leave the female sitting on the table. And... Would be happen. Save the female. Really, that's interesting. So, uh, what do you think? How many of you think uh, uh, loyalty is the most important? No, 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 no. Here, for us, in our value system. How many think truth is the most important? Yeah, so most of us feel truth. Probably more than 75% of the rest of the world, loyalty would be more important. Uh, and loyal to family. And that's one of the problems. Uh, I know I see somebody from Mbingo here. Uh, Nancy Palmer's here. In a lot of mission hospitals, the problem is in the pharmacy. If you're the pharmacist and your cousin's child needs some antibiotics but you don't have any money, loyalty means you have to give them the antibiotics. And I think a lot of the problems financially in some mission hospitals is leakage out, particularly out through the pharmacy. Uh, And uh, so, you know, that loyalty thing is very important. So (laughs) I have to tell you a funny story. I was just in Kyrgyzstan in September, and we had this young businessman showing us around. We had a great time with him. So he was telling us that uh, uh, in business, he said, you have three sets of books. You have one set for the government that you pay taxes on. You have one set for your partner, and you have one set for yourself. So I said, well, what what if you get caught not paying enough taxes? Hmm." He says, you find somebody in parliament to talk to, and they'll take care of it for you. (laughs) And that is the norm in a lot of countries. I mean, Macedonia, it was so bad that if, you know, residents show up maybe once a week, uh, I said to the chairman of the department, I said, well, why don't you just fire him? He says, I can't. He says, if I fire him, they go to a friend in parliament, and the minister of health calls me and says, you can't fire him. So this is the norm in a lot of countries. And, you know, we, you have to be aware of that, and uh, you have to deal with it. Well, I think we're out of time. Thank you very much. You've been a very good audience. I hope you appreciate it. Oh, I forgot my summary. <laughs> so just, it's just a renewing. So this guy told us, he says, what you do is you have your objectives. You tell them what you want to learn. You tell them what they need to learn, and then you tell them what they have learned. So this is basically what we already went through. Thank you. <laughs>